Good morning. Good morning. Hey, so before I get into this word, we're going to look at Acts chapter 17, but I just want to give one, actually, Shana might have already given this announcement. I don't even know if you did because I wasn't listening. <laughs> I was talking with God, okay? No, I'm just kidding. Actually, I actually wasn't. I was just kind of like... I was actually, uh, you said tryptophan, and I just had like a little, I don't know, I just started thinking about tryptophan, like, is that really a thing? Did I have too much? Am I still recovering from the, if there, for those who don't know what tryptophan is, I guess it's some kind of ingredient or chemical or something that is in Turkey that makes you really tired. Um, I think it is a thing, yeah. Anyways, um, but I did want to communicate this uh, quick announcement. So this uh, coming Saturday, we do this every great once in a while. Well, actually, we usually do it um, uh, right before Christmas. But we want to take a day uh, to beautify the space, not just decorate it, but we're actually renting a dumpster And we're going to rent a U-Haul truck because we're going to give away a bunch of stuff to Salvation Army. And we're going to throw away a bunch of stuff because if you've been part of churches, stuff accumulates. And so we also have another church that's sharing the space with us, a Guatemalan church called Potter's House that meets on Sunday evenings. And so they need storage, Uh, not that they've complained or anything, but we just want to make more space, more room for them. Uh, So what we're going to do is uh, next Saturday, there's going to be two, you can do both of them, but there's two blocks of time with kind of different purposes. So the first one is going to be nine o'clock to noon. And this will be more of the like, it's not all heavy stuff, but we definitely need some strong people to bring stuff up out of the basement, out of the storage. Like we have these old lights that are left over from the renovation that have just been sitting in the boiler room. We just want to like get all this stuff out of there, give it away, throw it away, and just you know kind of organize and make some space. So uh, just encourage you know I know Saturdays are sacred. Nobody wants to give up. I do not want to come here next Saturday at nine o'clock. So I won't be here. That's why I'm asking you guys to be here. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. I will be here <laughs> with joy. I'll try to put on the joy. But no, I'll be here to direct and everything. But um, we, yeah, we just, we, we just want to get the space um, in, in good working order. All right. And then at uh, noontime, all the crafty people can show up and there's going to be, it's not just crafty people because we need people that are comfortable on ladders and doing all these different things, but we want to, like we do every year, put all the decorations up and decorate trees and I don't even know what, I usually just leave it to the art people to figure out what they want to do, snowflakes and all the different crafty stuff. So that's from noon to, I guess, about three o'clock. Um, so just, you know, mark your calendar, come out, we'll have, we're not going to have like lunch or anything, but, um, we'll have plenty of cookies. You can just eat cookies for lunch that day. I give you permission. Um, it's like tradition in, in my family for Christmas was cookies for breakfast on Christmas morning. Yeah. No, I was like, I'd have like, as a kid, like 40 cookies. (laughs) It's not, not a good idea. Yeah. (laughs) It's already so wound up. 
All right. So anyways, that's next Saturday. I'll send out an email or we'll send out an email this week just to, to remind you. But if you can put it on your calendar, it's also fun. You know, it's not just, oh, we got to get this stuff done. Got to get the church decorated. Like These are opportunities to get to know people and, you know, be part of the community. Uh, we don't have like a, a staff, you know, this big full-time staff that just like does everything. And then you guys are just like the customers that come in and just, you know, kind of take in the the product of the church. No, we are the church, right? We're the family. So when it comes to things like this, you know, we want to be doing these things together. Uh, we want to be a family. We want to be a community. So come on out. You can invite a friend. Invite your neighbor. I don't care who you invite. It's not going to be, there's no like gospel presentation uh, mid, mid-morning. Um, it's just hangout time, eat cookies, um, make the church beautiful. Amen? All right, let's get into the word. Put on my reading glasses here. We are going to look at Acts, the book of Acts, chapter 17 today. Pushing through this uh, long book of Acts. We're actually going to take a pause for a while from Acts. Uh, we're going to do Advent for the next four weeks. And then we're going to probably do some kind of beginning of the year series. I kind of do something every year that's like, you know, sort of resetting us and, you know, here's what we need to think about for the new year. So what we need to do. Um, and then I, I'm thinking that during the season of Lent um, or somewhere around there, kind of leading up to Easter, we'll do some redemption-themed messages just to kind of prepare us for thinking about the great work on the cross that Jesus did for us. And then after Easter, maybe the week after Easter, or a couple weeks after, we'll resume the book of Acts and kind of take us, we'll kind of finish up Acts in the summer. All right, so that's that's the plan for preaching. But we're for those that have never heard of Acts, it's um, one of the longer books in the New Testament of the Bible, and it's kind of the historic history of the early Christians, or really some of the highlights of what the early Christian church experienced, and a lot of it is just the missionary journeys of Paul and Silas or Paul and Barnabas and all the different crazy things that happened. There's some really fun stories that are in the book of Acts. So we're looking today at Acts 17. I think it's one of the more famous uh, chapters for certain reasons. Well, maybe it's famous to me because if you're a campus pastor, which I was uh, for several years, Acts 17 it really is like a like kind of a go-to chapter because Paul is speaking to he's speaking to uh, people in Athens who was kind of an intellectual hub. And so there was kind of a way that he went about things. We'll get into that in a few minutes. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, just kind of take us through the chapter slowly and just make a few comments here and there. There's just so much packed in here that there's no way I can, I mean, we could probably do this for several weeks uh, or three weeks at least, because in this chapter, they uh, land in Thessalonia, uh, Thessalonica and do some things there, and then Berea, and then they also uh, do some ministry in Athens, so you kind of have a lot going on. But we'll just kind of go through it, but then I'm going to circle back around and anchor in one particular verse, one particular idea that I want to press onto your hearts. 
All right? You guys ready? Yes. All right, cool. So Acts chapter 17, verse 1. Now when they, this is Paul and Silas and his team, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And now Thessalonica, this is kind of modern day Greece. This is far away from, you know, Israel and Jerusalem and where really all the, the really the main uh, hub of Jewish activity happened, right? It was in Jerusalem. So now we're, but even in far away places, there would be almost like uh, Jewish synagogue plants, right? There would just be maybe one or two or a few of these. Maybe they were smaller, I'm not sure, but because, uh, you know, this, the Jewish religion kind of spread a bit and, you know, people traveled and different things. Um, so there was in Thessalonica a synagogue of the Jews. And this is kind of what Paul did. He would often start there because Paul was a Jew. And so he kind of had like an automatic in being a Jew, probably knew how to talk the talk, knew how to dress uh, as a Jewish person and as a leader. And so this is what he did. And it says in verse two, Paul went in as was his custom. This is what he kind of did as a starting place. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. A couple things you'll see through Acts 17 and really all through the book of Acts is you'll see uh, not just the, the message that the early church preached, but you also see kind of some of the some of the methods, some of the ways that they, they communicated. It wasn't the same in every place, right? There, there's different types of audiences. And so Paul adapted and, and, and kind of did things a little bit different. And here it says he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Um, so maybe he was more in, had the, like the teacher hat mode on. He knew that maybe coming with just like bold, forceful, authoritative preaching for this Jewish audience wasn't going to quite cut it. He had to kind of systematically kind of go through and just reason with them, maybe with the gentleness. And, and that's what he's doing here. On three Sabbath days, so, you know, over the course of, you know, kind of once a week, over the course of a few weeks. He was probably there for a lot longer, but this is what the writer of Acts, Luke, kind of highlights. And so what he was doing reasoning with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. It's a huge thing, right? So he's kind of bringing them through their Old Testament scriptures and showing them all the verses about the Messiah. Isn't this what Jesus did on the road to Emmaus with the two disciples, right? You know, just kind of bringing them through the scriptures, showing them all the, all the scripture says, reveals about uh, this Messiah. And then the, you know, kind of the zinger, Paul's like, and Jesus, that's him. You know, the one that I'm talking about, like, this is the one from scripture, the scripture, all the prophets foretold about this Messiah and he's come, it's Jesus. Well, not everybody loved that message, of course, right? Uh, but that's what he was doing, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. 
And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. So we could say it was fairly successful um, stop, you know, for however long they were there, weeks or months. Uh, definitely persuaded several to start to follow Paul and they believed the gospel. Of course, the power of the Holy Spirit can't be underestimated in all this. It wasn't just Paul's incredible persuasive abilities to prove these things, but it was the Spirit of God working in the hearts of people. And so some were persuaded. But verse five says, but, it's always like this. You always get different reactions, right? It's the same message. And some are like, this is, this is resonating. <laughs> and then others are like, I hate these people. And isn't it the same today, right? I mean, it's just, you know, share the gospel with some people or start to talk about the things of God. Some people are just so open. <laughs> They're just so wide open. And I actually went back, remember I was telling you a few weeks ago, I went back to the car dealership and brought a copy of Mere Christianity to that, that kid I was telling you. It was like so open. And he was like, oh, thanks. <laughs> and I was, like, I was like, should I put it in a paper bag so he's not embarrassed? I'm like, no, he just, he didn't even, he like took the book. He put it like right on his desk, on the top of his desk, like Mere Christianity, like to tell everybody in the office, like I'm, I'm reading a book about Christianity. Now, I mean, he didn't say that, but I was like, wow, this guy's, He's open. He's wide open. And then other people, it's like you can't get anywhere with them. It's immediately tense or difficult. Well, that's what this crowd is about. Verse 5, but the Jews were, not all of the Jews, but certain Jews were jealous. And taking some wicked men of the rabble, what does that even mean? I don't know. The rabble, who uses that word? Um, the rabble, it's like they just... Like the Jews were like too, you know, they were kind of like sophisticated, right? You know, they weren't going to do it themselves. Maybe they were just kind of like, you know, well-dressed and stuff. And so they had to like go find some people to do the dirty work. And so I don't know where they went uh, and just found the, the wicked men of the rabble. And they formed a crowd, a mob, and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason seeking to bring them out to the crowd. It's kind of crazy to think about, but, you know, because we don't really see this so much, at least in the States, but, but we kind of do, right? At times, like around the world, and even through social media now, like how quickly all of a sudden there's just this like anger and rage toward somebody or something that happened, and it can just be whipped up so quickly. Um, this is a side note, but I think when these things happen in our culture, listen, it's, it, all of us get tempted to get pulled right into it, right? And there's like a certain pressure to just, oh yeah, you know, like this is stupid and you just want to go. But it's just good to slow down and just kind of try to back off from the situation and be thoughtful, think the issue through. There's always two sides of different situations, Right? You know, don't, don't just automatically jump on the, you know, the bandwagon of like hating or just being all fired up about a thing because sometimes it's not as it seems, right? So you want to be, and it's embarrassing, right? If you're just like, yeah, totally, and you just jump on, and then a few weeks later it comes out, oh, okay, now there's more information, and now it's, we realize there was a different angle here. Uh, so we want to be 
people who are reasonable and who aren't loyal to parties and peoples and groups and, you know, or some current on the internet or something like, just, whoa, like we are loyal to the truth, right? We want to be reasonable and always be, even if like our favorite party or whatever is, you know, thinking is, if it's wrong, I was talking with my daughters about this, like if it's wrong, like can we just call it out and be like, yeah, you know, maybe I'm Democrat or I'm Republican or whatever, but you know, this person in my party, that's not cool what they did. You know, what they said is not right. I don't know, this is a total side note, but I don't even know where this came from. This is what happens when I don't use notes. <laughs> I don't even know. Okay, just maybe it's for somebody in here. Okay, good. Be encouraged by it. I'm going to get back to this text, okay? Anyways, but I was talking about like how things can be stirred up really fast. By who? But these Jews were jealous. This is the motivation, it's a sinful motivation because I think, you know, Paul and his team came in and probably were like just preaching the gospel and people were moved by it. And the Jews were like, wow, why don't we have that kind of influence over the people? And so they were jealous and stirred people up against uh, Paul and Silas. But I don't know where Paul and Silas were. But verse six, when they could not find them, Paul and Silas, they dragged Jason. Nobody knows who Jason is. Uh, he could have been their friend. He could have been the one hosting Paul and Silas. He could have been a landlord. I don't know. We don't know. A friend of Paul and Silas. They dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities shouting, here's the accusation. This all happened, escalated so quickly. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. What in the world? Okay. I don't know why there's a big blank. Hold on a sec. I gotta. It's like a missing part of my. Maybe when I copied and pasted it. These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. This is what was missing in my notes there. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. All right, let's go back to this. Intense. You know, we're reminded constantly through, through the book of Acts that there is a cost to proclaiming the gospel message, right? If you don't want to pay any kind of cost or deal with any sort of backlash or persecution, just basically take out all of the offensive parts of the Bible and maybe even add in some of the like popular, really, you know, hot values that people have today and just kind of craft your own version of Christianity. And you know what? People will love it. People will be like, you know what? Wow, that's really cool. I, I like this kind of Christianity. And they might even come to your church. They might even pay money for you to keep a church like that going because it makes them feel so good. But listen, we... Again, we're, we're loyal to the truth. 
We're loyal to Jesus. We are messengers at the end of the day, right? We are, we're just messengers. We're not independent manufacturers of different versions of Christianity. Like that is crazy. We are messengers. Now we can contextualize and, you know, try to put things in the language of the people, but God help us if we bend the message of the gospel to make it palatable for this crazy generation that is becoming less and less, um, you know, less and less open to the things of of God. Amen? Amen. Amen. I'm preaching to the choir. You guys are already there. I don't even need to say that probably. All right, let's get into the next uh, section here, Berea. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue, again, as was their custom. Now, these Jews were more noble. I like that Luke kind of points this out. They were more noble than those in Thessalonica. You kind of get the idea that in, Thessal- in Thessalonica, they, there was some openness, right? Some people followed. But you also see that Paul was just uh, reasoning with them from the scriptures on the Sabbath day, right? So it's just like once a week. Where here, there's a different kind of hunger for the word. These Jews were more noble. Uh, they received the word with all eagerness. And they, exa- they were examining the scriptures daily, to see if these things were so. I love this, and I know some of you love this as well. You know, sometimes we get this idea that we're just supposed to, you know, hear the word and just and, and automatically believe it. Like, we can't question anything. One of the reasons we started Renaissance Church was to uh, reach artistic people and also to reach people who love to ask questions. <laughs> Um, and also younger adults. I mean, I think that when we started the church 20 years ago, those were, those were uh, segments of society we felt were, were kind of marginalized. Um, but the question askers, that's a big thing. Because I think that, you know, it, often in church circles, you, you kind of get the, maybe the person that comes in has a, has a lot of questions and they're, they're just not, there's no patience for them. They're like, this is how it is. This is what to believe. Just, you know, shut up and like, just believe the scriptures. It's right there in the Bible in black and white, you know, and that's in so many words, kind of what's given to them. But they have genuine questions. And there are, uh, especially if you did not come from a Christian background, right? And you're coming from a mixed soup of all different kinds of ideas and philosophies, and you're just trying to connect the dots, you're going to have real questions that you need to think through. And some of, you, some of you are right there uh, right now. But I love that scripture uh, kind of lifts this up. Paul wasn't uh, criticizing them, like whatever, okay. You know, I just preached, now they gotta go examine to see whether it's true or not. They gotta like go deeper because they can't just take my word for it. Like clearly they're not, you know, open to the word. Like no, that is not at all. And Luke too, you know, Luke traveled with them. Luke was sort of commending them for, yeah, receiving it with eagerness, but like, okay, this sounds right, but let's really go deep in the word and make sure that it's, it's true. Uh, so it's a beautiful example. Many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. 
But when the Jews from Thessalonica, these guys are like out of control, learned that the word of God was, I think it's like 50 miles. I can't remember how far away. It's like far, it wasn't like a mile away. It was far away. Okay, so these guys from Thessalonica that are all fired up and started the, you know, brought people from the rabble to create a scene um, and drag Jason out of his home and all that. They heard that the word of God was being proclaimed by Paul at Berea, so they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. It, when I read this, I was like, what? Why are they so fired up? Right? It's like, don't you have jobs? Like, don't you have something better to do? <laughs> like, it's just whatever. Let these guys go preach this gospel. Like, were they, oh, just so concerned about you know, the, the wider kingdom that these ideas might be a bad influence on the children or something. No, I don't think so. They're just like filled with rage. It's so interesting how we see it even today, like right? a cause, you know, it can seem like a good cause, but like it just turns into like rage and anger after a while. It's like, what, why you're just like fired up to be fired up. There's a certain satisfaction that humans have to just hate, Right? to just find somebody to hate and just unleash our fury on them, maybe through, you know, through the keyboard or whatever. There's just something, again, as Christians, we need to stay way far away from that, yes. right? Now, there's a time to, to feel anger and to feel some rage against certain things, but it should always be a controlled thing, like Jesus, Right, was very controlled. He had indignation at times. The prophets had indignation, but they were never like out of control. They never just like ran into a big crowd. Yeah, this is crazy. And started screaming at people. No, it was very thoughtful um, expressions of their indignation. Even Jesus turning over the tables, right? And driving out the money changers from the temple. That wasn't just a Jesus was having a nice day, just walking into the temple, like, I'm going to worship the Lord. It's going to be so wonderful. And then he's like, what is going, what? And like, you know, he has like an outburst of anger and starts flipping out, you know, like he lost his temper. That is not at all how it went down. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. This thing was brewing in him for months and months and months. Anyways. Where was I? Okay. We're in Berea now. So the Jews from Thessalonica, yeah, they come up and they're agitating and stirring the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. It's kind of interesting. Okay, so they, I think Paul was like the ringleader. So they were like, we got to get him out of here or else he's going he's gonna to get his head chopped off. So they, they just sent him on ahead, bringing him, it says in verse 15, uh, as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. So they kind of get separated here. For whatever reason, they couldn't, I don't know why Paul and, uh, not Paul, Silas and Timothy who were Paul's companions, stayed back, but maybe they had to tend to some things. But all of a sudden, they're kind of separate. They, they just, we got to get Paul out of here. And so Paul, they send away. And it is far. It's like 100 miles or something from Berea to Athens. He's like way, way down. He's alone at this point, um, other than those who are just, you know, probably conducting, I think is the phrase, uh, you know, conducting his journey 
And so Paul, in verse 16, he, he's in Athens now. Now, we won't talk too much about Athens, but we've all heard of Athens. It's a famous city. It's kind of the place of Aristotle and Plato and Socrates, and there was incredible, magnificent architecture, and some of it is still uh, standing today, and you can see remains of it, and it is it was a city renowned in the world at that day for its intellectual um, depth and it's just everything, culture, art, uh, intellectual excellence, um, great writers came out of it, artists, all of it. It was a, a magnificent city. I'm not sure even what to liken it to today, but you know, just think of like a city that's like, oh man, it's going to be amazing just to see the wonders expressed in this city. And Paul is there. He's got some time to kill, right? Because he's got to wait for Silas, his companions, and Timothy. So I don't know about you, but if it was me, it would have been like, yeah, okay, cool. Take a little break. You know, put the tourist hat on. Let's see some of the great architecture. Let's walk around. Let's be in awe of the magnificence of this great ancient city. Go to the gift shops, you know, the whole thing. But it's not at all what, what happened. Verse 16, it says, Now while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. Different translations of the Bible bring it out in different ways, but you kind of get this idea. Again, it wasn't uh, an outburst of anger, but it was like this seething indignation that, and by the way, this wasn't a public demonstration. Nobody, nobody knew that Paul was feeling that way, right? But because he was alone and, and Paul must have shared it with Luke later. Um, but he was feeling this indignation over the massive idolatry. And there was just so much, like all these man-made uh, idols that were all over the place and all kinds of religious activity and false gods, and it was just everywhere. There was one quote that I read, like some writer said, it's easier to find a god there than it is a man. There was just so much idolatry. So Paul, and I'm going to circle back. This is the verse we're going to look at, but I'm going to circle back and expound on it a little bit. But let me just take you through verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and also in the marketplace, very different crowd, every day with those who happened to be there. So he's like doing the Jewish synagogue thing, reasoning with them, probably talking a lot about Old Testament scriptures, but then he's also... He's just at the, he's like at the farmer's market, you know, like just with random Athenians who were there who didn't really know anything about the Jewish religion, had maybe all these kind of false gods or whatever. Um, but he could, he could kind of flow in all those different arenas. And then also, verse 18, some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, maybe you've heard of those 
philosophies, Stoic at least, and there's certain ideas that go with these different philosophies. Um, they also conversed with Paul. And I love that. You know, Paul could kind of hold his own. He had a colossal intellect and could, you know, it wasn't just like, well, this guy doesn't know anything. He, Paul probably understood uh, the Stoic and Epicurean ideas and ideologies, and he could, he could kind of spar with them in a way that was, was compelling. And some said, you know, some weren't too impressed by him. What does this babbler wish to say? Others said, well, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to the Areopagus saying, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? So I don't know if there was a concern there or a curiosity there. It's probably a mix of different reactions, right? But it was just a new thing. Like, wow, this is definitely out of the left. I think Eugene Peterson, you know, has some interesting ways to, to un, unpack this. Um, you know, they, they were just shocked. Like, where'd you come up with these crazy ideas? You know, something like that Eugene Peterson brings out in his version. So we want to know more about this. For you bring some strange things to our ears, and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. And so, uh, Paul, yeah, they're all of a sudden get this opportunity uh, to expound further on their ideas. And so verse 22, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, men of Athens. It's interesting that, you know, he was so upset about the idolatry, but then he kind of pulls it down, uses some tact here, and doesn't blast them uh, for all their idols quite yet. He kind of gets to that, but he, he, instead of like blasting their idols, he sort of just exalts the one true God. Um, so there was some wisdom that is exhibited in Paul's message. He says, men of Athens, and by the way, he was with them for days, and this could be just a kind of a short, I mean, it takes about 60 seconds to read this. I'm sure Paul shared more, but these are maybe the highlights or just one piece of his message. But he says, men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And here he goes with the, really the message of Jesus. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Okay, there's a little jab, right? nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. So he proclaims this God who, who made all things, who has no needs and is not dependent on men at all as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. What an exaltation, right, of God. This is the God that I'm proclaiming to you. He's the one who gives to all mankind life and breath and really everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. 
He's kind of saying God is sovereign. He's the orchestrator over all things, over where people are going to live, what peoples are going to be a part of, what cultures, all of that. God is sovereign over the affairs of all nations and all time. So he's, again, I think there's some wisdom here too. Like he doesn't just cut right into Jesus, you know, the blood of Jesus washes from all sin. Like, whoa, what What are you talking? Like he kind of, he gets a little philosophical here, right? He's kind of starting big and then he's coming in and, and kind of narrowing the focus. He's kind of talking about these big picture things about creation and, you know, the sovereign ruler overall, um, which I think probably was wisdom in dealing with this particular philosophical crowd. And he says, and, and God, God did this, that, that we should seek God and perhaps feel our way toward him and find him yet he is actually not far from each one of us. Four, and he quotes one of their writers, in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are, his, we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. So there he's, He's definitely challenging their idolatry right there, right? God is bigger than a stone that we create and give meaning to. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, to turn away from idols and to serve the living God, right? Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness, by a man whom he has appointed. Of course, speaking of Jesus. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now, there is a lot packed in, but he's preaching God as creator, this one, this Jesus as creator, as this one who holds all things together, who is sovereign over all, who was raised from the dead, which definitely jarred some of the particular groups of philosophers because they didn't believe in any of that. Um, And that ultimately, this one will judge the living and the dead. It is really Revelation 20, right? All the dead, great and small, will one day stand before God, will one day stand before Jesus Christ as the ultimate judge. And so he, he's, you know, some have criticized Paul's sermon here. It's like, oh, he's being too, you know, he's being too, too clever. He's being too, uh, he's kind of watering it down and not, you know, he's kind of took out some of the elements of the gospel that are offensive. I, I don't, I'm not really seeing that. Um, you know, some say that, you know, Paul did that. And then later he was like, yeah, I'm determined not to preach anything but Christ and him crucified that he kind of, you know, shifted his game after he had maybe poor results in, in Athens. I don't think so. Because again, he was there for days and there was much more that was said than just, just this. But even here, he's, he's talking about judgment, right? He's talking about the ridiculousness of idols. He's talking about the supremacy of God, the one true Lord and his son, Jesus Christ. I think he's being offensive enough (laughs) in this message. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, 
But others said, we will hear you again about this. So Paul went out from their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom were Dionysius and Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. So there wasn't a whole lot of outward success in Athens, but some seeds were planted in this great intellectual city and a church, you know, began. God began to do his work. But what I want to leave you with is, and what really I've been thinking about more than any, there's so much uh, we could talk about, but it's just this idea of Paul coming in to the city and being alone, just walking around and feeling distressed mm. over the idolatry. And I really had to stretch here because I'll just be honest, there's different motivations. This is, gives us a glimpse of the, motiv- of the motivation of Paul, right? Because the next verse says, so he goes and he does something about it. Like what drove Paul to risk his life over and over? I mean, we know Paul was like beaten. He was flogged. He was imprisoned. Um, he, I mean, one time Ray, he was beaten almost to death, gets up and goes right back into the city. Like, whoa. One insight I heard recently was so good. It was like, well, if they didn't hear me the first time, maybe when I come in the second time and forgive them, maybe they'll listen to me. <laughs> I was like, That's, that really could have happened. But Paul was a little crazy. He was driven. He was motivated. And I think one of the great motivations that is easier for us to understand is the motivation of just compassion, Right? You know, we think about people around us, like when Jesus saw the multitudes, he was moved with compassion because people were like harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Um, We don't want people to go to hell. We think about people on the trajectory toward, you know, just away from God and enmity with God and they're... And it, it bothers us, right? We, we want it. We love people. We, we love our family members. We love our friends. We love the barista at the coffee shop or whatever. We just, you know, and, and part of what motivates us to pray for people and to, to try to love people and try to, you know, encourage them about the things of, of Jesus, part of it is just pure compassion, right? It's a good thing. It's a good motive. It's part of Paul's motive, um, I mean, there, we know that like in Romans, Paul says, I am in unceasing anguish and tears over my brothers, the Israelites. You know, I just wish that they, they could, could understand the gospel. And he was burdened by that. The prophets were the same. But there's this other more complicated motive that's really, it's harder for us to, to grasp and it's this motivation of being, there's a few words that come to mind, almost jealous for the name of God. Um, another phrase that comes to mind is like just having a passion for the glory of God. That somehow in the, in the grand scheme that we understand that like this is all God's, right? The breath in our lungs is from God. The, the hands that we have, the, the legs, the, the, the energy that we have, the, the imagination, the creativity, the, the, the brains that God has given us, that all of this is sort of on loan, right, to us as people made in the image of God. And God gives us all this for a purpose, right, that we might glorify God 
and enjoy him forever. So when somebody chooses to exchange the glory of God, right? The glory of the true God, worship of the true God, exchange that, push that away, and choose their own God. They're going to make up their own God. They're going to manufacture their own God. Maybe back then it was like, okay, let's make a, an actual stone statue and you know, make it ornate with gold trim or whatever, and then we're going to bow down to it and we're going to worship it, and we're going to say, this is our God. This is what we're putting our trust in. This is what we're going to look to for our satisfaction. Now, of course, we don't do that as much. It still happens today around the world. Mm -hmm. But there's all kinds of different idols, right? Material things, comfort, uh, security. Mm. Just money is a huge idol in this country, at least. Um, Idols can be just about anything. An idol is something that we look to. Mm. We look to for our security, for our satisfaction, for our joy, for our meaning. It's what we find our identity in, right? It could even be ministry. It could even be church. It could be religion. It could be good things. It can be bad things. It can be family. We can actually love our families more than we should, more than we love God. What do we love more than God? That's That's an idol. For some, maybe there's just one thing. Hopefully for many of us, there's nothing that we love as much as God. Another, somebody put it this way, if, if a particular thing was taken away from your life, would you fall apart? That's an idol. Yes. That's an idol. We should be in the place where God alone is our satisfaction, our joy, our dependence, our everything. Yes. Now, it's not that we wouldn't be upset if our health was taken away or all of our money or our house burned down or whatever. These different things happen. We still feel something, right? But we're not going to fall apart because even though the earth crumble and fall into the sea and everything we have in this world falls apart, we are rooted in the living God, right? That's what it means to be, uh, that God is our supreme worship. So back to, like, what was it that upset Paul so much? What was it about the prophets that were so upset about the idolatry of the people? It's that the purposes of God are almost like thrown aside violently. And what should be God is replaced by something else. Can you feel the struggle of trying to grasp that? You know, as I was studying this and and meditating on it this week, I was thinking, okay, I I get this concept, but I'm struggling to really care that that happens. Right, like when I come into the PVD Fest or Disney World or New York City, Times Square, and you know, you come into these different, whatever, it could be anything, festival or just even stuff on the internet or whatever, that we, you know, am I distressed over the idolatry? Am I upset 
that people are exchanging the glory of God for something inferior? Am I insulted? Do I feel insulted for God? Do I feel a measure of his offense? Or am I like, oh, whatever. People can do whatever they want to do. See, we live, we are like swimming in an age of tolerance, right? I mean, it's like we're just taught. It is reinforced like over and over and over and over again. It's just like be so tolerant toward everybody has their own like different religion and different way of thinking. It's all good and you just got to love everybody and it's just fine. But we forget that like God is actually offended by idolatry. Because again, he, he gives the breath. He gives the hands and the feet and the energy and the creativity and the intellectual abilities. And he's the one that gives all this to a human being. And then that human being goes and says, I don't want anything to do with you. I'm going to go do my own thing. I'm going to form my own religion. I'm going to be a part of this other thing. I'm going to worship other things. Exchanging the glory of God, right, for created things. How does God feel in that? We're not, it's hard to grasp, right? I mean, we know that like all of heaven rejoices when one person turns to the Lord, right? And comes to him. How about when somebody hears the gospel, but turns a deaf ear to it, closes their ears, says, I don't want that. I'm not doing that. I'm going to ignore that. I'm going to do my own thing. Well, all of heaven isn't rejoicing over that. There's grief. I mean, think about the, it just kind of got me into thinking about all the verses in the Bible where God expresses some emotion, right? He's grieved at times. The spirit of God is grieved over different actions that we do or that people do. I mean, even to the point where in the prophets, he's, he's portrayed as like a wounded lover and his people are like adulterers committing these like treacherous acts of adultery to just like crush his heart. We don't think of God like that. We're like, he's busy. He's doing stuff. Some people love him. Some people don't. You know, he's like, yeah, we'll sort it all out in the end. Like he's just this cold, distant, you know, big God in the sky that just, no, God feels stuff in ways that we can, aren't we made in his image? Right? I mean, in the tiniest ways, maybe some of us have had friends or girlfriends or boyfriends or whatever, and we've loved and poured into and served and helped and just had the best of intentions and they just betrayed us or dumped us for no reason. Some of us have felt that like that. That's like painful. Or maybe you've had a friend that that's happened to, right? A close friend. Doesn't it like move your heart? Because you see how much pain somebody has brought to your close friend. 
That's kind of what we're talking about. And so my challenge to us today is, you know, that, that we would be open to, to letting God develop this passion for his glory in us, that, that we would be bothered by the things that bother God, that we would be grieved at the things that, that hurt his heart. We wouldn't just be like, well, whatever, people are going to do what they're going to do. Like we would, we, would, we would enter into that and we would feel a measure of distress. We'd be bothered. And again, Paul, Paul isn't like yelling at anybody. He's, it's all internal. I'm not talking about like go out there and tell everybody how bothered you are by you know, their idolatry. That, I mean, Paul very carefully has an opportunity. He waits. You know, he's able to speak uh, wisely his, his message. He's not being cantankerous. He's not like a jerk. He's not annoying. Um, he, he, he does speak the truth. So I'm not advocating for that. I'm just saying in our hearts, are we bothered when people worship other gods? Are we bothered when people love money way more than they love God? Or love sports or football or hobbies or anything else? Sometimes it's like anything more than God. It's almost become, it's so prevalent in our culture that it's just normal. It's normal. It's normal to love like 25 things more than God. And, and in some cases, many cases, to not even really love God at all. Yeah, I'm not into that. I'm not, yeah, I'm not very religious. You know, people will say, yeah, I'm not really. I don't really think about that too much. And it's kind of like, oh, oh, okay, that's fine. You know, God gave you breath and you enjoy the sunshine. It hits your face and, you know, he holds the very molecules of your body together. It says in Colossians 1, right? He holds all things together. You know, if God just turned away from you for a millisecond, you would just crumple into nothing. But yeah, that's fine. It's normal. Yeah, don't, don't even acknowledge God. Yeah, just go your own way. Just enjoy all of the blessings of life and breath and all the God, everything that is good in your life comes from God. Yeah, just enjoy all that, but shut him out. Yeah, just slap him in the face and just go your own way. That's kind of what we're talking about. Again, we're so nice. You know, we're like, oh, that's okay. You know, we're so sympathetic. You know, well, they just don't understand. And, oh, I just, you know, feel bad for them. We pity everybody. I don't know. A lot of the old school preachers didn't have a lot of that pity, right? There's compassion. There's love. But there is... Hmm. Yeah, maybe I'll leave it there because I'm already over. I could keep going with this one. Maybe we'll have part two at some other point. Is this making sense, though? Yes. Yeah, it's, I'm, I'm struggling to, to be honest, I'm struggling to communicate it because I'm struggling to understand it myself. Like, I, I, you're just seeing me in process here, really trying to grasp these things. And I felt deeply convicted this week. Like, yeah, I've... Yeah. I feel like I care a lot more about the fact that people are headed toward hell and are lost than I do about mm. God being offended. Mm. That's right. I don't really care about that. 
usually. I just care about like people, you know. I'm just so connected with people. Like these are our people, and you feel bad for people. But how how often do we feel crushed Mm. over the grief that God feels over idolatry? I'm like, Lord, help me grow us. We want that. Amen? Amen. That's not an easy thing to want, but I think it's we're becoming more like Jesus to want that, becoming more like Paul. And I think it's an, an important motivation that will push us to be like Paul, to do whatever it takes to reach people. Amen. Thanks for listening. I know this is a tough one. Uh, let, let's, let's pray. Father, we, we just ask you right now to, to help us with this. Uh, we, we do want to hurt when you hurt. We want to grieve when you grieve. We want to feel the things that you feel. Um, Lord, that's not an easy prayer to pray, but um, could, you, could you develop that in us as a church? Um, we do care for people so much, and we know Jesus had great compassion for people, but we also, Lord, we, we want to be fueled by that motivation to almost guard the glory of God that you would get the glory that is due your name. And when people or cities are not giving the glory that is due your name, I pray that it would bother us. I pray that we would be much more like Paul and much less like tourists who just, you know, shift gears and go into tourist mode and, you know, just kind of become enamored by all the magnificence of this world. Lord, help help us not to be impressed by this world. This world is passing away. Help us to be effective as missionaries. Lord, thank you for each person who's come here this morning. Uh, Bless and refresh them. Let them have a wonderful day. Let them have, let this week, let them be fruitful. Let the word of God that's been preached this morning, let it, let it be like a seed in them that, that grows. Let these, you know, my sermon, let it, let it just be sort of a catalyst that causes them to think and maybe talk with one another. And it's not like a finished product that we put behind us, but Lord, let it, yeah, let it stir our hearts and minds to go deeper in you in our walk with you. And so we pray these things in the wonderful and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Amen.